If you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it. That there are more selfish people than selfless people. Every day there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. This is the Strength From Service Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Strength From Service uh, with the... We should come up with a fancy nickname for ourselves, but we haven't done that yet. But anyway, uh, my name is Jake Palmer. Mike McLaughlin is with us as always. Jack Zimmerman is here. And our special guest today, Michael, take it away. Uh, Our special guest this evening is born in Arizona, Scottsdale, born there, Uh, grew up in Centennial, Colorado. I get that pronunciation correctly. Uh, Reading is not a Marine Corps strength um, (laughs) or public school strength. A lot of things are required to do reading. Mm, Uh, Attended Notre Dame after high school, Uh, did four years there, did your undergraduate. Did you play lacrosse for Notre Dame too? I did. Yeah, crazy. Went on to Georgetown to go on to medical school for four years. Graduated there as class president. Yeah. Wow. Just one class president? Just one. <laughs> Even more special. We're off to a strong start. Yeah, I know. Way better than us. Uh, gra- uh, after graduating, did a residency with uh, Mayo Clinic from 2011 to 2018. Mm-hmm. And after that, accepted a position as a neurosurgeon. Not a rocket surgeon. We figured that's not a real thing (laughs) (laughs) at uh, Mayo Clinic here in Mankato. Yes. Uh, She is married to Mark, a mother of two boys. You're a a boy mom. Yes. Mason and Mac. Mm -hmm. Uh, More important in my heart, uh, she is a state champion in high school lacrosse too as well. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah, State of Colorado, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and then also uh, uh, developing over time now here, I would uh, I would uh, venture to say she is a friend of mine because we text more than just this show. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> without without further ado, uh, our guest this evening is Megan Murphy. Oh. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah. Greatly yeah. appreciate it. My first radio show. Wow. Very exciting. Oh, wow. Welcome. And it's, it's a big, your life is going to change dramatically. <laughs> yeah. Dramatic changes. Uh, it's most only of this, up from here. <laughs> most of the places you listed on there are the kind of places we only see, hear about on TV. Notre Dame, Georgetown. Yeah. Wow. Correct. It's like a movie. The closest to Notre Dame I get is Rudy. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Megan, well, uh, welcome to the show. We're so glad you're here. Uh, so uh, we always like to start at, uh, at the beginning. Where did you, you grow up? in uh, Colorado for the most part or can I give you a little I did yeah yeah. The born in Scottsdale um, my dad was retired army uh, oh, cool. banker and then um, moved around a lot so then we moved to Colorado <clears throat> when I was like eight and then that's so that's where I kind of call home um, my parents are both from there mm. and kind of grew up there so um, I was kind of coming back home for them that's both my grandparents were there yeah. and um Kind of, uh, my family's awesome. You know, I credit a lot of where I am today. My my parents are just amazing people, and <clears throat> their parents, in terms of, you know, part of why I do what I do is kind of a vocation and a calling. And uh, uh, I mentor a lot of a lot of kids now. You know, pre med high school that are, you know, everyone's interested in medicine, and that's kind of what I try to get across to them. It has to be a calling. You know, it has to be 
not another reason. Um, but so my, like, like I really love Grey's Anatomy is probably not what's going to really drive someone to, to right. make it all the way through medical school. Yeah. So my um, my mom's parents, especially my grandfather on that side, was very he went to Notre Dame. Service was a big thing. Um, he was our army. Um, You're just earning points with Jack. Left right. And right. Yeah. <laughs> my granddad was army too. And so I think it was kind of instilled at us at an early age. My dad was still in the reserves when I was little. So he'd go to Korea during the summers. Sure. And um, I think from an early age, it was just, you know, um, through, you know, faith and service in terms of how you serve your community, how, how you serve your family. And so that kind of, you know, I saw that demonstrated over and over again from a young age in terms of going, going to events, you know, that my grandfather, you know, chaired or things like that for the local community in Denver. And so <clears throat> you've always had that paying it forward kind yeah, of mentality. It just seemed like you. that's part of, you know, and then of course, you know, um, we grew up Catholic and, you know, went to church all the time and just have that, you know, um, gratitude in terms of, um, I feel like I never wanted for anything, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, my parents both worked really hard and was supported to do anything anything seemed possible. There were no restrictions and, but it was kind of, you know, giving back was just kind of a natural part of what you should do to aim to whatever you're doing is contribute to community in some way. Yeah. So, so high school, you started playing sports then. Yep. Yep. So that's a big part of your high school. Um, I, you know, it's funny when you're younger, you, you kind of, something's your identity. Right. And yep. so for me, it was like, <clears throat> you know, I was a nerdy athlete. You know, uh, I mean, how, how do you become a brain surgeon without being a total nerd? Right. Right. So, um, but you know, I found that niche for me and, you know, I, school didn't work for me without sports. So that's why, you know, I really wanted to play, um, at, uh, the highest competitive level. So, you know, I really wanted to try to play division one and, you know, so I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And I always tell people, you know, I wasn't that talented. I just was the hardest worker, you know, in terms of no one could outwork me. I, you know, I, my dad used to tease, like I'd keep him outside playing catch till it was like dark. And he'd be like, yeah. I can't see Megan. Right. We have to go inside. We'll call it and I'd be yeah. like a little bit more. Yeah. I got the glow in the dark ball. Got <laughs> yeah. It's fine. You know? <clears throat> so yeah, the sports was a big part. And I feel like, um, again, Notre Dame with kind of my grandpa going there, my sister went there before I did. And, um, again, you know, community and service and giving back, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Theodore Hesburgh was kind of the, he was very big in the uh, civil rights movement and he was the president of the university for a while. And, you know, his, his number one prayer all the time was, you know, come Holy spirit in terms of any venture of life that he had. And, you know, his main thing was, you know, grooming people or having a university that, you know, showed you how to give back, you know, in whatever skill that you learned, you know, how you give back. So, and then, um, I just, medicine seemed like, you know, I loved science, you know, for me, I think, um, you know, the human body is just amazing, you know, in terms of how, you know, from an embryo, like how does everything happen just perfectly to make a human, you know, mm-hmm. it's just is mind boggling to me. Right. right? No, absolutely. Yeah. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, also just humanity in general dealing with people, you know, that appealed to me too. So it's kind of, you know, science and then, you know, interacting with humans and then, having a purpose of helping people, I was like, Oh, medicine, you know, in terms of like, I get to help people. And then I also get to, you know, be nerdy and try to understand yeah. what's un- not understandable. You yeah. Know? To get to a brain surgeon. I mean, that's a, that's right. quite a, uh, a lot of a grind that you have to put in to get to that point. Right. 
Do you think a lot of that stuff started though when you were from playing sports and stuff like that, like oh, playing yeah. catch in the back? I mean, this instilled these this um, this work ethic inside of you, or this if I want something, if I just put in the time, the effort, the grind, that I I can do whatever it is that I want to do. Do you think a lot of that started from playing sports younger? Yeah, hundred percent. Because I feel like um, you know that's why I really want my kids just to be involved in sports. Cause even if you're not that good or you're not that talented, you learn so much from sports in terms yeah. of commitment, discipline. If you're not good, disappointment, adversity, you get injured, you don't get a starting spot. You learn to lose. You, yeah. Yeah. What very valuable, right. In yeah. terms of, and especially now I feel like there's not enough of that, like disappointment, getting lo- like losing, being bad at something, like how do you how do you figure that out? And you know, being able to process it and grow from that, you know, uh, adversity or that that failure or that loss too, as well. So I mean, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. And I think you know, I remember in high school, I tore one of my ACLs when I was a junior, which is like the prime recruiting season. Yeah. You know, that summer you go to camp, so the colleges can see you play and decide. And you know, I was slow that summer because I was rehabbing mm-hmm. a knee. Right. And then I remember one of the. Um, Cornell coaches who came out was like, uh, you know, I don't think you're fast enough to be a midfielder. Like, I think you're going to have to, you know, change your spot if you want to play in college. And I was like, no, I want to be a midfielder. You know, I'm not going to sit and watch the ball. I want to be involved in every play. And so I, you know, worked my butt off the next year, you know, rehabbed my knee and then ended up being able to be recruited well nobody likes cornell anyways yeah. 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 really an ivy league school is yeah. it? you know it's like so, brown cornell yeah, all those ones so and then you know when i went to notre dame i was you know i went there on scholarship for academics because sure. you know my parents worked incredibly i didn't even know they hard. gave those out uh, yeah. <laughs> never, never heard of those before. Uh, so, <laughs> didn't have that at trade school huh? yeah. Yeah, albert lee at riverland down there never offered me a <laughs> well, is that in like um, you know Sally May? You know, in terms right. of the loans you get to to get through college. So, but then after I worked hard enough, then I was able to you know get a scholarship to help cover the cost of school, which was good. You know, my parents always joked, "Well, that's your full time job." You mm-hmm. know, in terms of you know, I had little jobs in the summer, like camps and stuff. But they they were always you know you, you have time to work out and train and stuff. A little whammo walk around money is yeah. all that was you right. Know, yeah, school, some, school yeah, right? Just I, get you, some money to. So there's a couple differences then between us then as one, I was always too slow to play midfield, even without a ACL uh, tear. I always played defense and and lacrosse, but then also uh, I was not a nerdy athlete. I was just a dork who wasn't smart but happened to play sports. So like you just one up and all over the place. It's so. all coming together here. Yeah. 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 It's all coming hey man, together. but I had a cool nickname and a lot of fun. So there we go. Yeah, I mean if it really honestly and if it really wasn't for sports, I probably never I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know if I would have finished high school. I mean, that was the right. only thing that was like yeah. my hook. Like if I couldn't play sports then. Yep. Well, that, you know. that community that you build and you kind of referenced on it too. And we talked about the adversity and overcoming and that side of it and coping skills, but also the social integration of being able to interact and work as a team and read other people's emotions and read other people's social cues and pick somebody else up when they're down too. And uh, seeing the importance of uh, caring and paying attention to other people too. But then also feeling how good it is when somebody you know, reciprocates that to you on your team when mm-hmm. you get a bad player or something, you know, happen in practice or at home and your teammates kind of rally around you and pull you, pull you through it. Um, and then that's kind of just a vicious cycle in a good way of, you know, just kind of reciprocating that throughout life and with that team and that shared struggle. We've talked about it quite a bit with people we've interviewed here. That seems to be a couple common themes as mm-hmm. family, you know, has some sort of uh, service, you know, faith background or, or both. 
there's a lot of people that are in competitive, either individual yeah. sports or team sports. Um, and, and then just that, that ability to, to keep looking at a community, to, to keep fostering and keep growing that and moving forward. So, I mean, you definitely had quite a foundation because you, your, your father too was a, a, a Vietnam uh, vet too yep, as well. Two tours in Vietnam. Yeah. He's an army ranger. He's, yeah, he's wow. very <laughs> humble, like yeah. wonderful big teddy bear. You know, um, I was really close with my dad growing up. Still and are though, right? Still are, yeah. He's alive. You know, uh, he's alive. Yeah. Well, grown up, yeah. <laughs> Thank God he's still alive. Yeah. He had a cardiac cath a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. But um, no, he's. Uh, um, we always joke that I'm kind of the favorite because he was kind of retired by the time I was. Oh, sure. You know, my my brother's like nine years older than I am. My sister's. Uh, my brother's Navy though, so oh. you know, strike there's, against there's me. That, yeah. yeah, but um, <clears throat> and my sister's three years older, so they were like out of the house and. My dad went to like every game. I think he went to every game, but like two of my college, oh wow, collegiate games because he he his like retirement job was working for the airline, so he got to fly for free. Oh. And so he just was like, "I got to be here." Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. that's cool though to have that opportunity to be there. Because were they still living in Colorado? When they you were. were yeah. Oh, wow. My favorite story is we were in uh, like the spring break. We do they, we went to Wide World of Disney, the sports, and I think you know Duke, JMU, you know a bunch of the Division One teams were there playing. And, you know, we're practicing and, you know, the, some of my teammates are like, oh, there's, there's a scout there, you know, from JMU, they're in the stands. And I was like, guys, that's my dad. Because <laughs> they're not supposed to watch, you know, yeah. the, our coach didn't like parents watching. And my dad's not like, he's not like a small man. Right. You know, so he's like this big white haired man in the stands. I'm like, dad, can you next time like hide behind a bush or something? Yeah, he, does, he doesn't yeah. hide well. Like, no, he does not. He came yeah. up to me during the t-ball game, like mid game. <laughs> <Yeah, right? laughs> uh, like our kids play t-ball together and like her, her dad comes, you know, Mason's grandpa comes over and starts chatting with me like on the third baseline on the field. And I think somebody's like, Hey, you got to come back, Tom. You got to come <laughs> yeah, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> kids waiting to bat. Yeah. And then he comes and he's like, Oh, well, Mike was trying to coach and I yeah. just started talking to him. You know, he's just like, and then anyone who's like wearing a, like, you know, World War Two, Vietnam hat oh, or something. Yeah. And that you know, he'll be like, "Oh, hey, you know, Tom Murphy, I can't how laugh. That's totally yeah. me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nice. no, it was um, it was it was kind of fun that he was able to be around a lot. So what? Yeah. Uh, well, what was uh, the best season you guys had at Notre Dame as far as record competition wise? Well, so we made it to the Final Four. My no kidding, I'm not junior year. So we lost to Dartmouth in the Final Four at Boston University. So that was pretty cool to make it to. We made it to the NCAA's two of the four years I was there. Oh, really? wow. And then we lost in, I think, the first round my freshman year. And then we got to the final four my junior year. When you're playing like that, how hard is it to balance school? And so I remember studying for the MCAT on a bus. Oh, you know, wow. so it, it's. Can you explain what the MCAT is for somebody oh, who thinks yeah. it's a tabby cat? I, it just sounds. <laughs> it just sounds really hard. So I just assumed. Like, so it's yeah. like a you medical s- entrance exam. You okay. studied to be a pet owner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard. Yeah. Kitty litter. Yeah. Feed it. Yeah. Don't let it scratch you. Put it outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like a medical entrance exam. Sure. So just like uh, SATs, PSATs, ACT for college, it's like a similar. Yeah standardized test. I mean, that's the one thing about medicine. Like you just have to accept you're going to be like tested till the cows come home. It's just a part of your life. I think mm-hmm. last year I finished my last like big formal exam, you yeah. know? So it's just, and I'm like 40, you know? So you're like, now what test? Will I have to right. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. I'm ready. Yeah. Um, she's got kids now. So yeah. yeah. Oh, God. All another level that's the test. worst test yeah. of all. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's just, you know, where a lot of people are able to take, you know, what, other pre-med students or, you know, on campus studying all the time, 
you know, that's why you had to be very disciplined. Like you were saying in terms of sports, like, you know, I, I didn't go out. Right. It's, yeah. I was it's library, really library, yeah. practice, library, you know, my roommates, they always joked cause I was in bed at 10 PM every night. You know, usually we'd live in a quad or something and, you know, Murphy would always be, you know, they'd shut the door and be like, shh, Murphy's asleep. We got to yeah. go out here, you know? Um, but that's just what I had to do in order to practice, compete and get the grades I needed to achieve my goal of getting into medical school. Did you, so like when you're like looking to go to medical school, do you have any idea of what you want to do in the medical field? So a lot of people do. I did not. You just um, knew that medicine was. Yeah. I thought, you know, so with my ACLs, I tore one in college too. Yeah. Um, the other one, so I'm symmetric. My hamstrings are now my ACLs. <laughs> oh, nice, so, nice. Yeah. That's why I was trying to even things out. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I think, um, it, it's kind of like, you know, in terms of, having that exposure to orthopedic surgery myself, yeah. I was like, Oh, you know, and the orthopedic surgeon at Notre Dame, I was like, what a cool job. Like he'd come, he'd bring his kids to the hockey games. He'd like come to the training rooms. He know all, he knew all us athletes. It was yeah. like, Hey, Dr. So-and-so, you know? And, um, it, it was, he had pictures of everyone he'd fixed that like, and signed in his office. Mm-hmm. And then he also helped all the, you know, hip replacements, knee replacements sure. of South Bend, Indiana, you know? Yep. And I was like, that'd be such a cool, you know, you get to take care of these highly motivated, healthy people that do great after surgery. Yeah. So initially I was like, oh, maybe I'll do that. You know, like sports that medicine. That's my PT. That's what she really enjoyed yeah. about um, uh, helping guys that were wounded overseas is that yeah. they were, you know, most of the time younger, younger men that. Um, you know, lost a limb or whatever. And, and, um, she knew these were somebody that wants to get better. They're not, you know, chronically overweight at 70, 60 years old, whatever, don't really want to do anything. And they're right. complaining about their back hurting, you know, right. these are young guys that have been wounded and wanted to build life, you know, again. And that's why she enjoyed so much the PT aspect of, yeah. of helping us guys that were wounded. So I can, I can definitely see where that would inspire you. Yeah. hundred percent, you know, cause a, a lot of, t- if you help someone who's motivated to get better, that's by far and away so rewarding because they they're gonna achieve that goal. Yeah, you know, it with makes your it makes you feel more successful. Is that a good Correct. fair way to say that? Correct. Yeah. A purpose sure. behind your work. Yeah, yeah, you got so, it. And I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, Jack, because I was going to ask earlier. Uh, did when did you know you wanted to go into medicine? Is this something like I mean, we've talked to people that you know, and some of my favorite authors. Like I knew I was going to be an author at age fifteen, and I knew I was going to be a seal at age twelve. You know that kind of thing. Did you know as a young age that like this is something you um, wanted to pursue? I think it was more, you know, high school, college. Okay. You know, I, I, I've always looked, looked up a lot to my brother and he was also interested in medicine, was a biology major and he actually didn't get into med school first time around. And so then he, you know, then he joined the Navy. Shifted. Yeah. Yep. And so then he was, did other stuff for a while and then went back to medical school. And then I think with the knee injuries and then just my love of science, it just seemed like a natural, like in terms of looking at the careers you know, it's like, I, I want to go to work loving what I do and having, you know, some contribution in a meaningful way to other people's lives. And and medicine seemed like a great way to meld those passions in terms of like, you know, science, intellectually, like trying to understand anatomy, physiology, you know, all that complexity, but then also being able to have effectual change, mm-hmm. you know, on a human being, you sure. know. Right. So I think that's. I think my own experience with medicine in terms of like the surgeons and PTs allowing me to return to play, 
Right. You know, when initially there was doubters saying that, oh, now that you've torn your ACL, you can't play in college. Right. I was like, well, watch me. You yeah. know, that's and all then, I needed. Right. <laughs> it's every time we know. And then even same thing in terms of in, in undergrad, I remember there was a pre-med counselor being like, oh, you might not get into med school. And I was like, OK, watch me. OK. You know. <laughs> yeah. I'm going right. to try like hell and we'll find out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think um, but I think that's a huge part of, you know, in terms of deciding a lot of people, I feel like no really early. I don't think I did. Mm-hmm. Like in second grade, I remember marine biology. Yeah. Sea turtles. Right. Yeah. Let's you go. You know, I was yeah. like, let's do it. You know, yeah. dolphins. Get to, in, yeah. get to be in the water all the time. It's going to be great. Right. You know, start recycling. That's again uh, just another highlight in the difference of intelligence. She said marine biology. And I was like, what the hell does this have to do with me? You're studying marines? Yeah. You're hard kind of amphibious. I'm curious the process. You know, obviously, so there was uh, there's Notre Dame, and then you have to do the MCATs to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. I'm a Assuming to get to the level you're at today, uh, you didn't do a couple years at Georgetown. They're like, give me a brain. I'm ready. <laughs> no. Like, how, what does that process look like? I so, mean, uh, so you do, you know, you get into med school and then um, the first, you know, two years are all books. And I, I always tell, you know, again, the young kids that I mentor, it's like I really didn't learn how to study until medical school. Because the volume of stuff you need to know in such a short period of time is just, it's a huge leap, you know? So um, the first two years are just, you know, physiology, pharmacology, microbiology, all the stuff you need to know, like the basic foundation stuff. All the ologies. Yes, you got it. You got it. There are a lot of them. Not marine biology. (laughs) See, we know more about the stands. Afghanistan. Yeah, we're more of the stand. Yeah, yeah, we're the stand group. Alcoholism. (laughs) (laughs) Stands and isms. That's what we do. Stands and isms. Is depressionism a word? It should be. Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry, sorry to catch up. Before you get too far down that intelligence took you before you get too far down that rabbit hole, when you when, when you're looking at identifying a medical medical school, you're just like Georgetown. That's where I'm applying. Are you putting out a broad net? So you put out a broad net. Um, you know Notre Dame. You know the Holy Cross priests. They're technically not a Jesuit order, but they. You know Notre Dame had a good relationship with like Creighton, Georgetown, in terms of other kind of Catholic Jesuit teaching schools. In terms of having a high rate of acceptance of their students. So like sure. the pre-med counselor, they were like, well, why don't you try a couple of these? I, I can't remember how many schools you have to, you do have to catch cast a broad net. I think it was something ridiculous, like 30 medical schools or something. Oh, wow. sure. yeah. So yeah, I think I, I interviewed at like CU Boulder, you know, which was my home state. Yeah. And then um, I think UCLA, Georgetown. And then, you know, when you're talking like, uh, trying to get into these schools, right? Does it really matter that much if you get into like Georgetown compared to, you know, Louisiana State or whatever? So I mean, like, does I, it really matter like where you end up in later in your career, or is it more of like a I went to? So I think you know it looks good on paper, but right. honestly, I think the nuts and bolts of if it's an accredited medical school, right. you're going to get the foundation you need. Um, you know, in terms of. Yep. Being a good, good I didn't know if like, well, well, Mayo just doesn't take people from here, here and here because it's not as good as Georgetown. Right. And, you know, I don't know, yeah. you know, in terms of now, it seems I think everything is more competitive, like college is more competitive than when <laughs> I applied. Medical school is more competitive than when I applied. Residency sure. is more competitive now than I applied, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, basically, I tell people, you know, I got Georgetown sounds all fancy and all, but that's that's 
where I got accepted. So I was like, all right, let's, let's go. go. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. Well, and have that faith connection too with it too as well. Uh, I think 100%. that's going to be pretty big after that area. And I think everywhere I've gone, you know, Notre Dame, Georgetown, Mayo Brothers, I mean, that was started with, you know, the the sisters, right? Yep. Um, in Rochester after that big tornado, you know, uh, pairing with the Mayo Brothers to take care of the community. Um, so I think, you know, in, in Georgetown, you know, same sort of thing. Jesuits, you know, there was... Uh, what I have a fond memory of is so gross anatomy, right? So most surgeons, you know, in terms of when you're in medical school, it's not an ology, it's an anatomy, I guess. So, you know, you, you work on people who donate their bodies to science, yeah. right. which is a beautiful gift in terms of allowing, you know, basically students to dissect your body to learn. And I was, I've always been kind of a tactile learner. You know, I had some buddies who were like, photographic memory, never went to lectures, you know, things I had to go to go to lecture. I went to every gross anatomy just to see it, dissect it yourself and kind of learn the anatomy, right? Yeah. Just if you're like um, a mechanic type and you break, you learn something, how to break down a radio, put it back together, you know, break down a car, put it back together, engine, same principle with the human body. It just worked better for my brain to figure out, oh, here it is. This is what it looks like. Book, real life. And the cool part is that we'd have this, um, um, this giver, this mass in terms of a Thank, we'd invite the families of the people who donated their bodies to science, and we were able to kind of thank them formally oh, and, cool. and honor the oh, people is, who donated yeah. their bodies. And it's a very, it's a very special ceremony that's held yearly because it's the first years that kind of start the gross anatomy. And so I really liked that in terms of, you know, cura personalis is the same is Georgetown's kind of mantra: care of the whole person. You know, Mayo Clinic is the patient comes first. You know, so I think that it's been nice. There've been kind of faith themes in terms yeah. of like, you know, again, service yep. in terms of, yeah, especially nowadays in healthcare, it's happening everywhere. There's a shift towards the business of healthcare, right? Oh, in oh, terms yeah. of, you know, you have to make money in order to mm -hmm. keep taking care of people, which I understand. But sometimes I think the focus shifts away from actually the patient, like the patient should never be a customer, right? The patient yeah. is always the patient. So and I, I value where I was trained that that was those were you know guiding principles in terms of. So, but really, honestly, at the end of the day, everything you've learned through all the things that you've been through has literally been for every single one else. I mean, to take care of everybody else. I mean, yeah. literally, like it's kind of uh, you know. I mean, as an electrician, you go to work for yourself so you can figure out how to put outlets in and do this and do that, and so you can make money for yourself. You know, but really, at the end of the day, um, you're learning how to. Sit take care of people and it's pretty it's a pretty fascinating way to look at it i mean yeah all that time in the library all that time going to bed at 10 o'clock which is late in my world now <laughs> now but, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my 20s probably not but yeah no that that is a really phenomenal you know, way of looking at it yeah i mean I, never sat down and thought like all your efforts have always been right. for somebody down. else yeah to, to raise your skill level to raise your ability to be able yeah, to it's not like you can ever do brain surgery on yourself or you know things there like was that. a I mean, there was a general surgeon who was stuck in antarctica and he had a appendicitis and he operated on himself i don't know if you've ever seen oh, that wow. story i've heard that i've heard yeah. that story i didn't i've often wondered if it was just an old you know wise yeah no uh, yeah I think uh, there was a National Geographic special on it or something, but oh. no, you could actually not do that with brain surgery. That is physically not possible. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Rambo wants well, cauterize his what, own wound. What did you say earlier? Yeah. Watch me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show's over, guys. Yeah, yeah. Mike killed himself. Yeah. 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 
He proved. He really showed us. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the, the the documentary special was like, who's holding the camera? Uh, <laughs> you uh, think maybe Mike would ask that guy for a hand? Uh, uh, that's you know, you get a selfie stick uh, and figure it all out. So exactly. Side side note though, we just oh. uh, today's the what did I say? First of August. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday, the thirty first was the feast of uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola. July 31st, so we just passed that yesterday, too. So the Jesuit order founder. So pretty neat. Catholic in the, the room, too. So all you prods, avert your eyes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> we'll look away in shame, uh, but we won't uh, feel guilty about uh, it, uh, though. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the best part, worst part, medical school? What we're still on that, I guess. Um, good, good question. So I think I loved the, the learning years in terms of, you you know, you really got all the book learning and all the, you know, all this foundational stuff. And, um, again, teamwork I thought was really huge in terms of, I had a great study group that, you know, we complimented each other. We really helped, you know, each other succeed in terms of not being alone. But, you know, one of my buddies had a photographic memory, so it was really helpful to study with him. He'd be like, Oh For yeah, sure. that's chapter five, you know, yeah. but, nice. um, <laughs> like, yes. like <laughs> yeah, right? that's my response. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think the hardest part was you loved getting into the, the third and fourth years. You're exposed to like all the fields. You do, you do your rotations. Right. Um, and I always tell folks like people who are like, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon, surgeon. It's like you can learn something from every rotation. You know, probably one of my hardest rotations was psychiatry at the VA in D.C. Hmm. Um, just that's, mo- a, that's a tough VA, too. Mostly because I, I felt like I couldn't nothing I did was helpful. Sure. You know, you kind of feel powerless in it now in terms of as a student, you know, I can mm-hmm. see the the psychiatrists that were there were probably making a real difference. But as a student there, you're like, I'm not contributing at all. Here, here. Right. But again, very helpful because, you know, any patient you to treat has some sort of psych issue right. to deal with. Right. Whether it's abnormal, normal, whatever. So I think the hardest part of med school is as a student, you don't really have a defined role. Like your job is to learn, and so it's trying to, you know, tease. Expose you to as much as possible. Right, and you're trying to tease that line of like you want to help the patient. You don't want to be annoying. You don't want them to have a worse experience just because you're learning. A lot of it is, you know, making sure you have permission to learn. Most of the time in these academic centers, all the patients that are there know that like they're going to be residents. They're going to be fellows. People are learning. This is, you know, how we teach the future generation of people that are going to be taking care of people. But I think that was the hardest part in terms of like, what's my role? Like, even though once you get into residency, even though it's hard, you know, in terms of very rigorous, demanding, you know, um, you kind of know your role and you have real responsibility. So you can kind of, it's empowering to be like, okay, this is, these are, these patients are my responsibility. There's not like a, I'm here for a little while. Yeah, you, you're right. You yeah. know, in terms of, and then switching rotations all the time, like you'd get, you get a hang of something and then you'd have to switch gears, yep. which I guess is, you know, training in and of itself to be, you know, flexible and sure. kind of shift. But, Especially in your career. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that was the, probably the hardest part is just like, and then also trying to decide, you know, what, what, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I remember I, had, I was choosing between orthopedics and neurosurgery. I decided I wanted to do surgery just because, I wanted to be more active. I wanted to be able to actually do something for a patient that would practice, change, practice. right? Instead of um, not just do medicines or 
plans or, you know, like oncology, do medicines and treatments and things like that. I wanted to actually physically operate, yeah. you know, and I think also part of um, like being a leader in the operating room, you're kind of the leader. And that appealed to me in terms of like leading the team saying, yeah, you know, what we're going to do how we're going to do it. And I had some pretty phenomenal surgeons, you know, and yeah. like they would come to my room every day. And they would bring this giant whiteboard in, and they would just start scribbling on it. This is what we've been doing. This yeah. is what's happening. This is what's next. And uh, the one thing I always remembered about my lead surgeon was was is the way he led his team. Like, this is what we're going to do. And now, so-and-so, you tell him how you're going to do that on this limb. You know, the lead surgeon would do that, you know. And yep. he would explain what they were going to do. And then he'd be like, all right, any questions about that? And he'd be like, uh, put me back together, please. <laughs> you know, right. you know. I don't know if that's yeah. the best route. Then let's go with it. Does you know, it, does and, it work? If you're just, making one thing smaller, can you make something else bigger for me? <laughs> yeah, not but, that kind uh, of surgeon. But, <laughs> but the one thing that I always, I always, um, uh, genuinely appreciated was his his leadership in the room and like his command of like this is what we're doing, this is how we're going to do it, and uh, being somebody laying there basically with all four of my limbs blown off. Having somebody come in there and be like, look, we, we have a plan. Yeah. This is how these people are going to execute it. Do you have any questions? We'll see you at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know? Right. And it was just like, I could go to bed that night knowing that that at least I had an idea of, of the direction we were heading. And they felt confident they could do something for me. And, um, you know, I knew my life was going to be better after tomorrow. You know? In some some way. You know? And uh, it's a... It's a very comforting thing as somebody going through some experience to have somebody that can have that leadership, like you said, like especially in an operating room where you you want that confidence of you bringing the team in there and you want that 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 pressure put on you to perform the best you possibly can. And, um, you know, I, I can see all the athlete ties to that, you know, what's well, it like just like you experienced with your surgeon. It's an incredible privilege for a patient to trust you mm -hmm. with their life and well-being. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't take that lightly. I don't think any, you know, good physician takes that lightly because a lot of times I meet people and they have to trust me. In their worst day, sometimes. They have to trust me like that. They yeah. or their family have to say, okay, we don't know you from Adam. Dr. Murphy here, like, here you go. It's an exercise in faith, actually. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, you know, I always, you know, consider that in terms of that, that leap of faith that as a patient you have to take. And a part of my responsibility as a surgeon is like your surgeon make you feel confident in terms of, you know, yeah. I know I'm going to do my very best for you. Right. My, my book is actually tell five minutes because, um, between, uh, the chopper and the hospital, they threw me in the back of this truck and uh, my anesthesiologist was on my left and my surgeon was on my right. I never met him in my life. Just came off the battlefield. Yeah. And, uh, the anesthesiologist asked me first, are you allergic to anything? And I said, yes, penicillin. And he looked at me and he's like, not really worried about penicillin right now, but you know, <laughs> and, uh, I was like, I am, I get hives and I have nothing to itch with, you know, <laughs> I'm always blown up. uh, but the surgeon looked at me and said, if you can stay awake for five more minutes, I'll promise you your life. And that's what I needed. Um, you know, in the operating room, I knew that, uh, for me, it was so much easier to keep trying to draw on a breath and to stay focused on staying awake and alert and doing all those things because he gave me the confidence and knowing that if he, if I could just stay awake for five more minutes, yeah. I got you, you know, I just need you to stay awake so I can, yep. you know, get some blood in you and, and get some of this, this stuff pinched off for you, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are, um, you, you probably don't even realize how, um, much, you know, your guys' confidence can spill over onto, to us and make us feel like we really do have a shot, you know? Well, and I think that's a, a big part of medicine is that it's not the technical stuff. 
you know, the technical stuff, you train forever. Like, there's a reason neurosurgery is the longest, you know, like you said, it's not like, mm-hmm. you know, Jake said, two. you did two years and then you know, here's a brain, you know. Yeah. The, the reason, you know, when I got that letter, there's a match, right? You know, after your, after I decided on neurosurgery, because I was like, you know what? I like dealing with sicker patients, more critical issues. I like dealing with the breadth of anatomy and the type of procedures versus, you know, compared to orthopedics. Um, and, you know, the anatomy is the most fascinating to me, the spine and the brain. You yeah. know, that's why I chose it. And then when I got my letter, opened up Mayo Clinic, I was like, all right, seven years, I'm going to be in Rochester. Here we go. Wow. And, you know, when I think about that, I knew when I, I, you know, really wanted to go to Mayo to train, I knew that at the end of seven years, they would train me so that I would be a technically expert surgeon. As long as you put the work in, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, because that's the time that it takes, I think. You know, I'd never felt you know, bitter at the length of time, you know, all of my 20s spent in the hospital because that's what was required in order for me to learn the skills so I could help people safely and efficiently, right? That's what's required. Yeah. It's just, you know, just like, um, it's like an apprenticeship, right? You just need time, you know, yeah. to kind of, you need to repeat the skill. The hardest part I think of surgery is the decision-making, you know, in terms of the, the surgery, the technical skill, the things that you do. Yes, some of that is more, um, challenging than others like the microsurgery versus the big carpentry and stuff for you know scoliosis deformity the microsurgery of you know brain tumors and things like that um spinal tumors you know there's there's a variety but it's you know what's best for the patient so like in terms of um or what the patient wants you know so someone comes in with stage four cancer they have a brain tumor based on their burden of disease i have to talk to them about what are their wishes like i have to kind of lay out what their options are right And then, you know, I was kind of trained. Some of my mentors were like, well, because right now, currently in healthcare, the patient is a big decision maker, right? It's shared decision making, which I think is very important. I love that part of medicine in terms of, you know, me as the expert providing all the options, explaining what those look like. But then I also feel, you know, as the expert, I do need to give my recommendation in terms of like knowing what I know about your wants, your wishes, or if I'm talking to a family, you know, in terms of someone who comes in with a brain hemorrhage or after a trauma or something, and they're not able to make a decision, you know, then it's trying to decide, well, what, what would your loved one want? And, you know, operating is easy. I mean, you know, relatively, relatively, once you have the ability, it's trying to decide what's the best thing. And a lot of times, you know, it's very humbling because I always tell people, like, only the good Lord knows, you know, what's going to happen, what the time you have left is. I can make my best guess based on mm-hmm. the information that I have, but these are all the possibilities. Sure. So I think um, that's a huge part of surgery is having those discussions with patients. And that's what I love about it in terms of you're building, like you said, the worst time in someone's life yeah, or the worst time in their family's life. You're building that relationship. You're ushering th- them through that. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Was like, no, knowing that you were going into this, I'm, I'm Mister. Keep your bad news to yourself. I don't I mean if I hear, so, I don't want to know bad news. Just, yeah. just, I just leave me in the dark. You know, like that's yeah. who I am as a person. I just don't want to know bad stuff. Yeah. And you had to know going into this though that you're gonna have to tell people almost daily that that you're gonna have to tell them that maybe this is the worst day of their life or the worst news they've ever gotten in their life or that a family member didn't make it or whatever it may be. I mean, uh, how do you find the strength every day? You know, it's a strength from service podcast, you know, how do you find the strength to continue on to like, to have those bad things? I mean, is there enough good enough outcomes that you, that you makes you feel like the bad ones aren't so bad? Or is it something that, um, you lean on your faith heavily to get through some of these things or 
is it that you know you, you you continue to play sports or coach sports as a way to you know blind you from the things that you have to go through every day or you know maybe maybe you drink a lot. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding, but uh, no, maybe uh, Friday. Yeah. <laughs> but like you know, how do you find your strength every day to keep this grind of having to you know I mean everything you do really nobody really goes in to have brain surgery because it's a it's a it's a fun thing or enjoyable thing to do you know. I think um, faith is a big part in mm-hmm. terms of knowing that. You know, I have to, I, I really believe that, you know, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do believe that I'm not alone in the operating room in terms of working through my hands, the skills I have, where I am, uh, you know, a patient who comes, you know, I, I can't tell you how many stories in terms of like just the right time in terms of if something had different happened, a patient would have made, wouldn't have made it or happened to come to the hospital just in time. You know, it just seems... Um, not all by chance, right? And so yeah. I think a lot of it is just doing the best I can and knowing that's all I can do mm-hmm. and kind of letting that go, right? Yeah. It's easier said than done. Right. So they say, you know, every surgeon has a graveyard. You know, I can tell you countless, you know, faces I picture in terms of from training, you know, in terms of people that didn't make it yep. or had a bad outcome, you know, despite best efforts, right? Yeah. That's a big reason I didn't go into pediatrics. Yeah, I just never. I don't have I, do it. I don't yeah. have the gift mm-hmm. to deal with that sadness. Um, some people do, you know, and, and I loved the you know some people don't go into pediatrics because they don't like dealing with the crazy parents. I I didn't mind that because I'm like you're dealing with a parent the worst part of their life. Yeah, absolutely. you know something's awful happening to the most important thing in their world. I always say that. anything anything bad can happen to me, but just leave my kids out of it. You got it. Yeah, you got it. And so I just you know it wasn't that it was just. And I talked to lots of pediatric neurosurgeons and one of them, one of my good buddies was like, you know, I go home and I'm thankful for my kids. Another, another neurosurgeon was like, you know, I just think of, I, I, you know, as long as I win more than I lose, you know, that's how I get, get by with it. Another one was like, well, I just think about the next patient. They don't know anything about my last patient. So I focus on the next patient. And thankfully I had some good mentors that just helped me realize that I just don't have that gift to deal with that sadness. Yeah. And I don't want to compare like, uh, any, any, in any way, but just more or less of an analogy. But like, you know, when you're playing sports, you might have a bad game or whatever, you know, and things didn't turn out the way you want them to. And you, you leave the field feeling, feeling defeated, you know, but you know that if I don't leave all this stuff here before, before I get on the bus, I cannot drag this into the next game and start out with this, yeah. carrying this baggage with me. And I, I feel like you must have a lot of that. Like when you close a patient's door, you kind of have to take that deep breath. And, you know, grab the next chart and head to the next room and be like, all right, right. next battle, you know, we're going to win this one, you know, yep. if the last one didn't go so well or whatever it may be. Well, then, too, it sounds like there's a lot of practice, gratitude and thankfulness there. I mean, you see some of the, the most happiest people in the world that have some of the worst things hap- uh, happen to them. Yeah. 100%. And then you see people that have everything to them and they're miserable. And the difference is, is the people that have the, the tra- traumatic thing a lot of times is they're grateful and thankful for what they have. And it sounds like that's an approach, which is a practice skill set. It's not mm-hmm. just something you just don't wake up one morning, you, you do and say, I'm going to be grateful. And then it's fixed for the rest of your life. You have to intentionally work on looking at uh, what's been given to you, looking to what you're being thankful for. And that's a big part. I think an under uh, under uh, valued part I think of uh, faith uh, from all religions, um, yeah. the Abrahamic religions too, you know, uh, across the the world and what they they provide to individuals too. And then there was something that I picked out on your your bio on Mayo Clinic um, that as a as a Catholic too really hit home with me. Um, you said in your own bio that medicine is my vocation, 
Um, and in the Catholic Church, you look at the priesthood and the sisterhood as vocation. We do prayers for uh, vocation, uh, too, as well. And just to kind of see that spiritual tie into how you approach uh, it, not as a profession, but as your vocation, um, meaning you're, you're giving and you're serving, you know, and maybe you didn't mean this or not, but that's, that's how I took it as like a, a priest uh, leads and you lead in the sur- a surgery room, you lead your, your staff, you have that discussion just like a, a priest or a, or a, a sister or a nun does uh, with you when you're having a difficult time. The priest isn't saying like, well, this is exactly what you need to do with her. It's call and response. They're asking you questions and they're walking you through and they're, they're helping provide some guidance and, and helping you find out what path you want to choose. And it sounds like you kind of take that approach to your medicine, just listen to you saying, I just don't come in there and tell them, okay, listen here, you know, we're going to force you to do this surgery. And you, you listen to them, you're responsive, you ask what kind of outcomes they want, give them your best opinion and your advice and kind of guide them. So that's, that's pretty cool for me as a, as a person of faith to see that in the medical field. Uh, yeah, I don't know how, um, especially in my specialty, there's a lot of life and death. I don't know how I would practice if I didn't have faith. You know, and again, right. I don't know everything. You know, I question things all the time in terms of, especially with my pediatric stuff. It's like, okay, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Yeah. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, obviously choosing to believe, my dad, like my dad says, there's no downside. Um, you know, <laughs> so. Um, well, well, that, that's true. <laughs> I, I heard a, a quote not to get too far uh, down the, the religious path too, but. Uh, you know, somebody said, with all this bad in the world, you know, how can you believe there's a God? And I said, well, with human nature, the fact that there's good, you know, yeah. at all is what drives me right. to believe that there's, you know. Mr. Rogers, he yeah. said, look for the helpers. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Whenever there's bad stuff happening. Right. Uh, and I, th- I think, so I have a file in my desk. So whenever I have a bad outcome or someone doesn't do well or, you know, I'm either feeling bad about some, you know, something, an outcome patient, you know, something, um, I probably am on the side of maybe getting too emotionally connected to my patients. I just, um, that's just how I practice. I don't know how to do it a different way for better or worse. You know, my partner says, you know, you get, you probably get a little too involved, you know, but that's just how I am, you know? So whenever I have a hard day, I have a file of all the notes that I've ever received from patients or family members, you know, and I put everything that anyone's ever given me, I have on my desk, you know? Um, you know, and that's just, it's nice to look through those in terms of when something doesn't go through well, you're like, yeah, I have made a difference. Like, yeah. look at all these people I'm having who a are, bad moment, not right. a bad career. Yeah. Correct. Look at who all these people I've helped, like this person and even the people that I don't help the actual patients. Um, it's still such an honor to help their family mm-hmm. through that process of saying, you know, cause what I always tell people at the end of life, the last act of love you can do is make a decision for that patient of how they would want to die in, with dignity. Right. Sure. Like that's the last true act of love in terms of, you know, you're not letting the cancer win. You're taking charge. You're yeah. saying, you know what? Dad doesn't want to be in the hospital for the rest of the life. He's done being poked. Let's yeah. get him home on hospice, keep him comfortable yeah. and, you know, let him, you know, pass in his home by the lake with family around him for sure so i think there's there's great honor in that yep. and so when i do my best die. right when i do my you know death and taxes right that's yeah, what they say. For real, yeah. so you know um i do try to focus on that in terms of even if i've done what i can for the patient and it doesn't work out because a lot of times that's what happens with trauma right you know in terms of i do what i can but sometimes it leaves the patient in a place where 
quality of life. They so I may I may prevent brain death, right? You know, by taking pressure off the brain in a certain amount of time. But then sometimes people can get stuck in this area where we have to have hard conversations with family about what would your loved one want and what would they not want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why, you know, as a public service announcement is, you know, talking with your loved ones in terms of what's acceptable, what's not. You know, that's always, you know, I've had those conversations, hard conversations with my parents just because I want to be able to honor them and not put them through something that they wouldn't want. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's insane how many people I come across in my profession that don't have uh, advanced directive or right. living wills. And I mean, most medical centers or healthcare systems have them available online yeah. that you can fill out yeah. and, and yeah. have and talk with your loved ones. Yeah. We, we love to talk about what we're doing tomorrow or this weekend or with life, but the one eventuality is death. And we, we tend to shy away talking with people that are close to us about it. And unfortunately, <laughs> If it's if it's not when those situations happen, it's even more yeah. difficult for the family that's standing around making the decisions and dealing with right. the, the medical professionals. And I think it's, you know, unfortunately, death is very taboo, right, mm-hmm. in terms of people try to, you know, skirt around it and not talk about it. And so, you know, a lot of times I'm having those hard conversations, right, in terms of, you know, telling people, you know, hey, it looks like you have this type of brain tumor, you know, from yeah. all the data, this is looks like. You know, in terms of this is not something that we can cure, right? Yeah. So I think it's um. I think you know I always tell my patients like I don't want you to be surprised by anything. Like I know I'm talking about a lot of bad things, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But you know, sounds and, wild. And you know, and I always tell them, you know, I always want to talk about the bad stuff when everything's calm. I don't want to rush in here when it's an emergency and say, "Hey, you need a surgery. Let's go. Do you want it yeah. or not?" You know. So it's. <laughs> Come on, time's ticking. You know, it's just, um, well, and a lot of what I do is time sensitive, right? In terms of like, if they say time is brain, right? So in terms of like, I try to have those conversations. So if someone comes in with a brain bleed that doesn't need surgery right away, I try to have those conversations when they come and say, hey, judging from what you have, these are the chances that it would get bigger. If it gets bigger, would you want me to do something? You know, (laughs) and then then trying to go down that path, right? Yeah. So... I don't know. It's it's just helpful if people and it's, I think, you know, more of older people tend to kind of maybe have those conversations. Sure. But, you know, it's the hardest probably when you have someone young. Yeah, right, we never. Yeah, we kind of had to have that talk earlier yeah, in life. Man. But I, I had a will at age 19. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, no, don't they make you? Before yeah, we got a plan. Yeah. Right? They're like, here, fill us out. We plan on using it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need this later. Yeah. But we're going. You're definitely going to have that filled life insurance. Yeah. Here yeah. You go all all yeah. the way. Yeah. Oh, my okay. brother called me before he went to Kuwait. He's like, hey, so m- most recent will is in the top dresser of my. And I'm like, why, why are you telling me? Did you tell your wife? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, it was literally just a weird thing being 19 and like talking with my, my mom oh, yeah. and my dad before I left of like, so, you know, if, if it happens, what do you want for your funeral arrangements? Yeah, or it's like lower me at sunset. Like that's like ACDC and fireworks. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's like, I don't know, mom, they got Irish car bombs downtown at the Hayes, <laughs> yeah. two for one tonight. Can we just figure about this later? You yeah. know, kind of thing. Yeah. But Text it's definitely me. yeah something you had to sit down and figure out. But to, to kind of pull it out of that and maybe do something a little bit more uh, lighthearted yeah. for a room full of the majority of us who aren't smart enough to be in medical school, didn't know what an MCAT was, weren't Division One athletes, weren't class presidents. Yeah. The list goes on of all the things that we're not, uh, that you are. Uh, in the scope of neurosurgery, uh, what what is like the most uh, rudimentary uh, procedure that you do and what is what you would consider the most difficult procedure that you would do? Um, probably like vascular aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations. That means bleeding. 
Yeah. In the brain. So like yeah, like a <laughs> so aneurysm, well like a blood vessel blip. Like yep. there's an abnormality in the blood vessel. If it bursts, then you know basically fifty percent of the people don't make it to the hospital. Yep, that's like an aneurysm when you hear somebody you had an aneurysm. It. You got it. Yep. And then uh, arteriovenous malformation. So you have arteries that deliver oxygen to body parts, and you have veins that drain oxygen from body parts. So there can be an abnormal connection. So the venous system is generally low pressure. The arterial system is high pressure. Yep. If you can have an abnormal connection, and sometimes that can blow. Sure. So uh, those are very challenging in terms of, you know. How do you, you identify these so fast and get somebody to? So a lot of times, so like kids, young people who come in with brain bleeds, one of the top diagnoses is it's a arteriovenous malformation. You, you just know, kind of know where to go. You just so medicine is like you have your differential diagnosis. So when someone comes in with a problem based on their age, their medical history, their medical problems, what their imaging looks like, what they look like, you have your like top five. Okay, it could be A, B, C, D, E, right? Yep. In terms of so like a young person with a brain bleed, a lot of times that's an AVM. You know. Uh, an aneurysmal bleed looks a certain way on a CT scan. Okay, so you're like, shoving them in a machine quick and getting some quick you got data. It. Yep. Um, so those are, I think, probably those and maybe like brainstem tumors that oh. are really close to like critical structures of the brain that are like breathing, sure. mm -hmm. heart beating. How do you know? I mean, how do we ever figure out like this part makes your brain breathe? This Isn't that part amazing? Your, I mean, how do That's we ever figure that out? It's so amazing to me. So yeah. like to give you an example, like I had, a, a, you know, someone who has like a brain tumor in the back left part of their brain. It's like, oh yeah, that's why the ophthalmologist noticed that you couldn't see out the right visual field because, oh. and then even the visual pathway, just as a simple example, you can tell I'm getting all excited. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's so complex. So you have the optic nerves coming from either eye yep. and they come back and they connect to each other in the chiasm. So then, you know, from each eye, you have a left visual field and a right visual field. So they go back to the chiasm and the brain sorts it out. So the right visual field from both eyes goes to the left side of the brain. The left visual field from both eyes goes to the right part of the brain. So like to give you an example of the um, surgery that I've done, you know, if you're taking care of a tumor as part of those visual fibers on the left side, then the person has a visual field cut on the right side. Right. Weird. What, and so what, you can tell someone what part of that sh produces the color because that's the part I need work on. <laughs> the color <laughs> the that would color. all be in the oxfoot, yeah, the cortex, yeah, yeah. Again, it's, just so, it's, just, it's just wild, you know. I mean, the the brain is one thing I feel like wow. we've never really been able to oh, crack. No. You know what I mean? Like we kind of got we can put a fake heart in a person, you know. We can put yeah. a fake lung in a person, you know, or whatever, yeah. you know, all these fake parts, you know. Yeah. Uh, including limbs. Right. <laughs> and uh, but the brain, you know, that's kind of the one thing, you know. Um, I just remember growing up, I was all the time, put a helmet on, put a helmet on. You know, you can fix everything but your head, you know? Yeah. And uh, I really, really noticed that while I was in Afghanistan. You know, obviously I took a, a heck of a hit, you know? And um, one thing I was always told is it was such a good thing I stayed conscious until I got to the operating room. Consciousness was a big part of the TBI stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what is like, you know, me and Mike have obviously taken a lot of hits to our head, you know, blasts, things like that, you know? Um, it you know, you hear about these athletes with the, the uh, CTE. CTE, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, um, I mean, as veterans, you know, I mean, what are things that we can do to try to help our help our brains for all the hits that we've taken over the years to try to prolong anything bad that could come out of this? You know, where all the all the burn pits that we were exposed to. I mean, a lot of that stuff can't be good for our brains either. And, right. you know, and stuff like that. What are some things that like uh, every single person in this world, whether they've taken a hit or not, that we should be doing for our brains? 
So the biggest thing is preventing repetitive injury. So like that's why, you know, in kids, you know, there's, you know, laws that were passed in terms of, you know, kids have to be removed from play. Like yeah. in terms of multiple concussions close together, we know that's predisposes you to a devastating, you know, intracranial injury. In terms of injury over time, you know, sports when you're an athlete, you know, as a soldier getting, you know, other insults in your, during your service, we know it can be cumulative. Um I don't think we know a lot about, you know, in terms of why some people get CTE, why some others don't, you know, in terms of there's a lot of research going on in terms of regenerative medicine, in terms of how do we um, stop those effects in terms of that cumulative effect. I think the main thing is the only thing you have in control is your future and your Mm -hmm. present. Right. So wearing a helmet, you know, in terms of, you know, if you're going to ride a motorcycle, knowing you're putting yourself at additional risk, even if you're the best motorcycle driver, the other people on the road are crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not you when, when people who patients of mine drive motorcycles, I'm like, yeah, I don't care how good a driver you are. The people are like texting, you know, doing their makeup, fiddling with the radio, eating McDonald's. Yeah. Like it's not you. It's it's like, you know, a ton car versus a motorcycle. You're going to lose. Right. That's the old saying. It's those that have been down and those that are going down. Right. Right. None of this sounds fun. I was hoping you'd say like, you just spray some lavender on your (laughs) sheets at night. And there's this lion's mane supplement that you can take, <laughs> yeah. you know, have a nice uh, warm bath. Yeah. You know. And they know what, what do you talk to your husband about with Muay Thai? Because wasn't he uh, into that? Oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, he doesn't do it anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, some of the, some of the stuff <laughs> he did. in the head too many yeah. times. Yeah, so. God. Um, some of the stuff he did as a kid, I'm like, how are you alive? But uh, um, I think it's what you can do to control. Like, you know, I see all these adults on bikes with their kids. The kids are wearing helmets, but the adults aren't. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you got to model that. Like, that's okay. Neurosurgery, there is very little preventative medicine. Very little, right? Wearing a helmet is something you can do to prevent like a major <sighs> injury. He's so disappointed. My, my 10 year old's like, we don't wear helmets around here. We die like real men, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Carry me on my shield, Dad. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, oh, God, here we go. Yeah. Also, like, intellectual, like, cognitively challenging activities as we age. We know that's helpful. Yep. So, like, you know, Watching my parents, you know, my dad's 79, you know, he plays his little computer solitaire game. So something as simple as that in terms of challenging the brain, you know, He's it's like, hey, honey, honey, I got to get a couple more hands in here. I so, I'd well, love to go to the grocery me. store right now, but I'm doing this for us. You well, know? God, Mark, Mark's been talking about poker, so like, <laughs> it's just an right? excuse to have there a poker go. night. And I'll play some hold on. Like, hey, man. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, Exercise. I'll tell my wife, Megan, said, Megan said that I have to do this for my brain health and <laughs> all the shots I took to the noggin, so I got to go. It's uh, science. I got to go. Yeah, Don't science. question it. You know, yeah. wager one of our child's college tuition here tonight. So, <laughs> so I have uh, uh, just a uh, interesting question, I think, that's because uh, we're kind of we're kind of pushing our luck on time, but we, we're, I'm not in a hurry. Um, here's my question. I've often wondered this. So, you know, you were doing seven years at Mayo as a residency, right? Mm-hmm. So I've often wondered, what is that like? So at the end of your seven years, is it just like anything else? They're like, all right, thanks. Bye. Or do you, do you start applying so that you have that lined yeah. up beforehand or how beforehand. does that work? Okay. So, so the first four years are like your junior residency at Mayo. Yeah. It's structured. You do, it's like an apprenticeship model. So every three months you're like, paired with certain surgeons that do certain sort of surgeries. And then what I loved about Mayo is that apprenticeship model in terms of like you get graduated responsibility, graduated um, ability to operate based on your technical skill that you demonstrate. You know, one of my bosses would always say, you know, I won't let you do anything I can't fix, you know, in terms of like being in there, you know. So 
one, then you become a senior resident. You have to pass your written boards. So that's like a just a written exam, just like all the other bajillion you take, you know. And then then you start taking senior level call. So okay. the junior residents on call call you, and you get to start doing some decision making. So it's kind of that's what the seven years of training you you know gradually get advanced in terms of how much responsibility you have. And you learn the technique first, and then you learn the decision-making, and you build on that. Sure. And so then when I was a fifth and sixth year, I did an infolded fellowship, so a fellowship during residency. So one year I did my clinical research, and the, set, the other year I did a spinal deformity. So you know that's my specialty in terms of scoliosis, adult degenerative scoliosis, deformity stuff. Okay. And so that's when I started applying for jobs, like fifth and sixth year, in terms of trying to have a plan once you were done with your seventh year. So that's when I started looking at, you know, um, I liked the Mayo Clinic's mission, you know, in terms of I liked being somewhere, you know, the Mayo brothers wanted their physicians salaried. So there's, you you get paid the same amount regardless of what surgery you do or do not do. So I, I liked that principle in terms of being honestly to tell patients, like, I don't have an incentive to operate on you. Right. No, sure. Um, so, and I just liked... Just the ethos, the three shields, research, education, yep. you know, um, patient care. I just, I liked that. And so, um, and my mentor, you know, he was kind of head of the community sites. You know, yep. there's Eau Claire, there's Mankato, there's La Crosse. Those are kind of the local ones. And they had neurosurgery programs and they needed help. And so, um, um, actually, a good buddy of mine, we both signed on for Mankato. So sure. we both came. He, he's since got moved on to Duluth, but I've stayed here because it's just it's a good fit for me you know I wanted a small community hospital um work-life balance was huge for me I had one kid in fellowship I had one kid here being a surgeon and being a mom is a unique challenge um so you know you kind of see how my male colleagues have it's just a it's a different balance sure I can imagine yeah so um it was very important to me that I could you know do what I love in terms of serve a community be at the hospital, do the surgery that I love and am passionate about and help people, but then also have the ability to be a good wife and a good mom. Yeah, for sure. You know, Um, so the the Mankato was a good fit for that in terms of, you know, um, not being in a big city, being in a good place to raise a family, but then also I like the community hospital feel too. You know, I can walk down the hall and like, I know the therapists, I know the nurses, you know, it's not like you're at a big university hospital and you're like, uh, so-and-so, can you... uh, yeah. Yeah. Get some IV fluids for my patient. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, doctor, hey, doctor, Pam. Doctor. Yeah, right. <laughs> Spies like us. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, oh, and and I, can, I can definitely understand. So what what is life like now? You've got that life work balance. You got the community hospital. So you got the you got the boys. Uh, yeah. What what's life like as a as a neurosurgeon? So I, I was told something that you're that balance is an illusion. Right. It's, are you effective? Yeah. Am I effective at home? Am I effective at work? The hard thing with me is I can never. I can't give stuff, I can't let it slide at work, right? So if anything has to slide, it's my home life, right? So, you know, when I'm on call, I could be reading to my kids. I get called in the hospital, I have to leave, right? right. And so, you know, my six-year-old's getting to the age where he's starting to understand yeah. where I am. And sometimes I've brought him on rounds, which I think is really valuable in terms of when I'm not somewhere, when I'm not home, like, this is where I am. Yeah, I'm not out partying. 
Right. I'm I'm doing something with purpose. Yeah. Right. Because I'm sure that's what the six year old was thinking. <laughs> oh, mom's oh, out partying. She's not home. God, I was just thinking the difference in rounds. Like my dad being a garbage man when he would bring me in rounds. I was, <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, sweet, we're going trash diving here. What's this? A dirt bike? Holy sh! You know, Can't bring it home, Dad. Yeah, uh, all the dump shooting trash rats. You know, yeah. you can call it. You yeah. can bring it home. They should have a T-shirt. Rounds experiences made different. Like you know, a trash can and like a scalpel on one side. Yeah, but it's it's better. It's better. You know, right. it's just uh, trying to balance it still. Sure. No, that, and I can understand that. On that that parent dynamic too, and you, you mentioned just a, a difference, and that's something. Well. The three of us will never be able to be doctors, anyways, just based on our, yeah. our deficits. Don't <laughs> we'll worry, we're not going. We're not going we'll, for we'll you. Leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm be able to it's get never that, too late. I'm gonna be able to get that ingrown toenail out of there, but that's about it. Don't have those um, anymore, Michael. But, yeah, well, you know, that's a good problem to have, I guess. But, um, you know, you mentioned it. Uh, you had your your second uh, son, Mac, uh, while you were uh, performing uh, your duties, your job, and out of residency. What was that like? You know, as you're you're growing. Uh, a child, and I imagine you're just not like, oh, I'm pregnant, I'm done for the next nine months. So you were actively still performing your craft to a certain point, and just knowing what I know from being around my wife during her three pregnancies, too, is there had to have been some physical differences in just, like, your ability, like, yeah. you know, the smells, even textile. Like, what was the, the biggest challenge going um, through that pregnancy while, you know, performing your job? So a lot of times I'd, like, puke before I'd operate and then sometimes I'd Thankfully scrub before. out to puke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not in the cavity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not like that Seinfeld episode of Junior Men or anything. Job you know? security. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, one time I was operating and like as you get bigger, you have to kind of operate side saddle, you know, because your belly's in the way. And I was a fellow when I was pregnant with Mason and I remember I felt like, I thought I felt the patient move and I was like talking to the anesthesiologist. So I was like, the anesthetic seems a little light, you know, I'm still working. <laughs> And, and she's like, you know, she's like, Megan, I'm, I'm looking at stuff. I don't see how that's possible. And then I realized it was the baby moving. Sure. And I felt like a a-hole. I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Your, your well, anesthetic not your is fault, fine. It's your kids. Yeah. 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 You're um, grounded before. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I think, you know, when I, once I started to like have contractions, I stopped. But some, some yeah. I, knew a, I knew a gal who was starting to go in labor when she clipped an aneurysm. I never was. I never did that. Holy I was like, no. "That's my goal." Not if to they're do the only that. person right. around, I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. right. No, not. Don't worry, the boss was right. There. Yeah. But um, and then with Mac, it was like COVID. So then COVID was just blowing up. So I got to work from home for the last six weeks. Oh, cool. And then it was different being. <laughs> you have to come to the house to operate. I'm just not... <laughs> Yeah. My address is one one seven. Just yeah, well set up in the kitchen here; it'll be fine. People have garage sale signs in the corner. There's <laughs> one just surgery. neurosurgery. Yeah. Like just relax. Like, yeah. It's gonna be fine. Um, but in terms of like leading up to there, it was different because you know in Rochester, you know I wasn't the person ultimately responsible for the patient, right? Like there was my staff, you know, the consultant or attending, you know, yeah. Grey's Anatomy. It's an attending <laughs> Mayo Clinic. We are consultants, and then. Um, you know, there's fellows, residents, they're coming out from everywhere, right? So if I something happened and I had to scrub out, someone would take care of the patient, right? Sure. But here it's like the patient is my responsibility. So towards the end of my pregnancy, I started talking to patients. I, I would not operate if I was the only surgeon here. Mm-hmm. I would I would make sure, you know, just because I don't know, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you don't know. And I don't want the patient to suffer because something happens with my health or whatever. And so um, I started talking to patients like in the rare event that something were to happen because of, I, you know, my partner would be able to step in and, and then you just don't do, I didn't do longer, more complex, sure. more rigorous cases towards the end. But what about cool. when you came back? Did you feel like, oh boy, I haven't done this in three, four months no. or you're just good to go. It's like riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. 
I suppose so, you're kind of just presented with whatever's, I mean, whatever's there for the, the need of the demand. You're not like, you know what, I'm just going to take a couple of low-hanging fruit, you know, procedures and I'll come back. <laughs> like, Can you throw me a couple softballs? Yeah, yeah. I'm a little rusty. Not, not softball tumors, but like, you know. Uh, I would think that after, after what, like, you know, seven-year residency, uh, Regular, you know, Notre Dame for four years, Georgetown, you're like, I've spent 26 <laughs> years learning this, and I forgot it all. Yeah. Nine months. Give me some strep throat. I was home for <laughs> 12 weeks, and I forgot it all. Um, all right, a couple a couple of questions. Yeah. Uh, let's, first and foremost, and I, I and this is going to sound like a joke, but I mean it. Why 4 a.m.? Always, always, always surgeries happen like at the butt crack of dawn. So the first case is usually like seven, th- like ours here is seven thirty start. Oh, okay. So well, then that's not so the bad. patient has to come an hour and a half before to get like checked in to, you know, get an IV placed, have anesthesia, see them, go through their medications. Yeah. Okay. So seven thirty, but is your seven thirty is kind of your standard start time here? Yeah. Yeah. Because I always see them. That's it always seems like they're early. Civilian in the army, yeah. we get going. Early. You guys. Well, yeah. you do more before breakfast. <laughs> than most people do all day. It's not I a competition. Just, yeah. 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 I thought everything was. Right? <laughs> Um, and this is this is another that's going to sound like I'm making a joke, but I'm not. I'm serious. Uh, you mentioned and you used the perfect wording for it. You said I spent all of my 20s in the hospital. Um, and I'm wondering, is it true that is, because of that, is there a weird there's no way to say this without just saying, is there a weird social awkwardness that doctors have have because you miss out on like in college? I was in bed at 10 p.m. Uh, I spent all my 20s in a hospital studying and learning. Uh, do, do you do you? Is there a thing there you have to try to overcome a little bit or, is, or I not? Think, I think for some people, you know, in terms of some specialties, I mean, nurse surgery, one of them tend to mm-hmm. attract people that might be less. A little brainier. Yeah. You know. <laughs> less socially Sorry. outgoing. Anyway. No point right. Intended. No right. Point yeah. um, so I think um, there's, is, a, there's a component of that. But then huh. also, I mean, that's a that's a real important part of medicine. Like right. you have to be able to connect and communicate with people. Approachable. So, too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean. Again, there are really technically good surgeons that patients don't really like to interact with. They're like, sure. oh, well, they, they did a great job. They took out everything and their surgery was great. But like, well, and I imagine that's got to be a deficit for dealing with the staff because you're leading the team. And yeah. if you're not approachable, relatable, you no, don't that, understand like the human condition. That's, I guess a, so. Like, the, uh, it may have been a lot different without sports, too. You know, if you were yeah. just living in a library in your room studying. Well, yeah. you know, it's like I've always said, I want like, you know, I've always said I want my songwriters heartbroken. I want my neurosurgeons <laughs> to be nerds and I want my you know, soldiers yeah. angry. You know, what I mean, yeah. those, there's, those are the things you want in right. life. I, like right. if I ever need brain surgery, I don't care if the guy ever talks to me. Just do it better than anybody right. else. Because me, that's not a that's not a social skill. That's a technical skill. As right. long as you can talk yeah. after. Right. 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 <laughs> um, speaking of which, do you do a lot of uh, you see on TV where they're like operating on somebody who's awake when they're operating on his brain? Is that we a don't. real thing? It is. Okay. We don't do those here, but um, in Rochester, they do really cool stuff like functional neurosurgery. So um, like there, there was a guy in Rochester that um, was in the orchestra and he had a tremor. Mm -hmm. And so they did the surgery awake where you put electrode into a part of the brain that helps your tremor. And so he's playing, they videoed it and he's playing the violin and then they get the electrode in the right place and he starts playing beautifully versus broken. Stop. Yeah. And then the Parkinson's patients with tremors, they'll be like writing and then they'll get the their electrode in the correct place and they'll it's pretty incredible. What about wow. phantom pains? You ever done anything with phantom pains? So there's I know there's there's a there's a surgeon in Rochester with grants from the DOD that's oh. working on, you know, limb reanimation, like yeah. um that's functional like, pain. That's like, really that's cool like stuff. my uh probably my biggest problem that I have after I mean they put me together wonderfully, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. for the most part, you know, I have 
the simplest pains that you could you know imagine from like sitting out day or sure. whatever just get sure. sore from that stuff but uh, the one thing that we just it seems like that we can never get a grasp on is this phantom pains yeah. you know and it's uh it's it can be you know, I, I'll probably have three maybe four episodes a year yeah where I'll have like a day where or an, a night like I'll have a really bad all night long where I'm just getting a shot. Yep. feels like I'm stepping on a nail every three, four times a minute, and it's just like excruciating, like jumping across the bed pain, like I don't want my kids to see me. Right. And I'll, I'll be foggy for a day or two, because it's just the mental pain of like you're just trying to fight through that pain for hours and hours and hours on end. It's just so exhausting physically and mentally that like yep. you're just drained for days after that. And that's, and like people are like, oh no, it's so bad, this and that. But I'm like, it's three or four days a year I really have. I mean, I'll get zingers, all, you know. Sure. It, daily you know here and there you know but it's not like a, a thing that would even interrupt even a conversation you know yeah. um but i know there's some guys that really 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 i mean and struggle with them and the longer that i've been wounded um the better it's gotten you know and the one thing that for me especially in the last couple of years is uh getting my diet dialed in you know that was one really big thing for me is like getting rid of sugar i mean uh, uh salt mm. you know and just keeping that pressure off those nerves with flu and stuff even but, beef jerky I'm a sneaky little piece of <laughs> Right away, you got to cause trouble. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff with like um, cortical stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, sure. peripheral nerve stimulation. You know, pain medicine is trying a lot of different avenues to try, you know, that phantom pain that's so challenging to treat with medications or whatnot without being, you know, drugged up. Yeah. You're right. Right. That's but I mean, thing, even yeah. that is just fascinating. Like, how does your brain. Right, perceive right. pain in a limb that does no longer exist. Right, like that in and of itself is fascinating to me. Yeah, because like to me it was explained as like an alert. Like my legs, like all of a sudden, like yeah, hey, we're not getting a signal back from the foot. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then it's like panic, and yep. it just starts throwing pain. Like yep. something's wrong because we're not getting anything back. You know, right, right. It's wild. It's all circuits. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of the electricity. I had a patient who's an electrician once, and he's yeah. like, so explain it to me. <laughs> like he wanted he wanted to like see the circuit, and well, I was like, all right. Static. You're like Jack. He's really short circuited. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's would I wonder if something like that would uh, if if like because I've heard acupuncture basically does that what is it disrupts that signal sure. and you know the idea that the signals go in there like we're not getting reading from the foot and then yep. uh, so it sends a pain signal looking for a reaction much like a sternum rub or something if you're yeah. you know first responder so um, they said that the I wonder if that would help with. Uh, phantom pains and sure. i can't imagine i'm the first guy to think of that no. if i am here it is send my award yeah. to uh, <laughs> jake palmer care of anyway um so how how involved are you outside of uh outside of work i mean are you uh are you coaching the kids are you chasing them around are you driving them to hockey games or do you have them playing lacrosse instead no lacrosse yet um they're into hockey so Um, My husband gave up his career in training once we, you know, once I got pregnant, he gave up his career because we needed someone to be flexible and Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to be me. So um, he does most of the schools and stuff. And, you know, we've we've found some we have a wonderful nanny to kind of help kind of offload. And, you know, it's amazing how much of a team we need to kind of help support us. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because a lot of like during during residency, like Mark didn't know when I was going to be home. You know, mm-hmm. it was like I left for the morning and he had Mason and it was like, well, it's just us, dude. here we go. I don't know, yeah. you know, when I'm going to be home. Right. Daddy says we have a new mommy now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Day mom, my mom. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
So I always joked that I was just the boobs that came in the night to the to Mason. So well, isn't that how you met Mark? <laughs> I was gonna ask I set you, myself up for that. If your if your husband's like Speaking any other husband, yeah. I would imagine does he drive you crazy? Because if if you were married to me everywhere we went, I'd be like, it's my wife. She's a brain surgeon. <laughs> my wife's a brain surgeon. No, he's pretty good. He um, you know, in terms of I'm able to like share stuff that I'm proud of, you know, and still, you know, be uh, humility is very important to me in terms of like, I don't know everything. I think you have to be humble to be a good surgeon. If sure. you know, it always bothered me when I had junior residents who thought they knew everything and I was like, you're going to hurt someone. And then you're going to realize yeah. that you don't know everything and that you are human and you make mistakes. Like you have to know that like, like I'm, you know, I'm never too shy to ask for help. You know, if there's something in the OR that I'm like, I remember that was a big thing in training in terms of like, so my boss may think I'm stupid, but the end of, at the end of the day, this patient deserves best. So if I'm not certain about something, I'm going to call sure, someone else yeah. in, have them take a look. And they might think, you know, they might give me a bad grade on that rotation, but that's what I tell people is like, at the end of the day, you got to think of the patient, like right. what's best for them. Like you got to put your own pride aside, which I think is probably through lots of things, like in terms of military and stuff too, you got to, Put your pride aside and Life you know, general, help other people, yeah. right? Yeah, I think people people uh, confuse a lot of times confidence and ego yeah. um, and confidence and pride right. uh, too much. You need a little bit of both, but you don't need to be too out of whack where you're too skewed heavy on ego and pride. Yeah. Uh, you know, and confuse that with confidence. And then, you know, that egotistical side of it makes mistakes and you hurt people and you damage yourself and you decline to learn. So, yeah, right. it's a yeah. it's a dichotomy. Yeah. It's a big word. How do, you, uh, how do you feel about people that have like a doctorate in like mathematics or something like that that get called doctor do you feel insulted by that no but it's like it kind of, <laughs> so i love the i love the show friends if mark will tell you i, mm -hmm. I can quote like friends till the yeah. cows come home and you know they're always like uh, rachel and ross are going to the hospital because her dad just had a heart attack and she's like yes i'm dr geller and she's like ross that means something here <laughs> you know because he's a paleontology yep. but um yep. yeah you know it doesn't bother me you know phds they in whatever yeah. You know, mm -hmm. field they work hard for it too. Because whenever you know? I RSVP for anything, I always put Doctor Jackson or because you don't have to put any credentials with it. So yeah. all my invitations <laughs> say Doctor on them, and I always just you know. So I'm I'm gonna take off on a whole train though too. So I one of my my smart aleck things is like when I came home before we had kids or anything yeah. that too. It's like got the the flyer in the mail. It's like five ninety nine for a year of Playboy uh, subscription. <laughs> Hell yeah, sign me up. And it's like Dr. Mike McLaughlin, Esquire the third. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I start showing up. It's like, they might think I'm a little trashy, but yeah. at least they're going to know that I'm intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that. She doesn't find me handsome. She'll find me handy, you know, like yeah. the Red Green show. Yeah, no, for sure, 100%. Uh. Uh, so I, I guess on, on that uh, yeah. that note, uh, just one thing before we let uh, Jake roll up with his, his usual questions here at the end. Uh, there was a, a little article in the paper here a little while ago about you and a little furry uh, friend in the hospital. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I l have loved dogs since as long as I can remember, and we didn't have one growing up. <clears throat> and finally um, got a golden retriever, which is like my dream dog. And I um, had a was looking for a puppy training program and found this gal in Salt Lake just online that she trains service dogs and, and I contacted her and got a, got a puppy yeah. and the puppy, it was like six months. And then the more I got to know the, the, she scored really high on her, like they test, you know, puppies at like six weeks for their aptitude for service dogs or therapy of things. And she scored really high. And so I had her for a couple of years. And then, um, during COVID 
I started bringing her to the hospital just for like the staff in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And just the response was overwhelming. You know, during COVID, you know, the general public doesn't realize the strain that put on healthcare workers. They, they might have some idea, um, but, you know, we lost a lot of good nurses. Mm-hmm. You know, we lost a lot of good physicians. You know, there were physicians and nurses that, you know, committed suicide just because of having that ethical dilemma of not being able to help people, right, that were suffering and hurting. And so just uh, to be able to contribute to some sort of joy, you know, like you can't look at my golden retriever and not be happy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's so cute and just yeah. lovable, right? And so then um, I started to talk to the clinic, like the volunteers, and there was a program in Rochester called Joy Canine. <clears throat> and so it was the principle is to have a dog for staff to kind of be uplifting and help them decompress and Break things up like the that. Thought process. Yeah. You got it. And so, because, you know, there's all this data out there in terms of dogs lowering blood pressure, dogs, you know, decreasing stress, you know, decreasing heart rate, you know, all these things. So they let me start bringing her in for staff. And then I got her certified as a therapy dog so she could start to see my patients. And then the response I've gotten since has just been incredible. You know, um, I can't, nice. try, you know, now I get thank you notes from my patients that are like with dog treats and a picture of a golden retriever on it. I walk through the hospital and people look at me and they're like, where are Where's Maisie? And I'm like, hi to you too. You know, but um, she just makes people so happy. And, you know, there's this, there's a little boy that was getting his infusions for Crohn's disease. And we had kind of a couple standing dates in the infusion center. And she just, I'd put her on the bed and he'd pet her. And um, some of the most amazing ones I've had have been really, really ill patients, um, even, you know, hospice patients that, that she's been able to interact with. And um, it just brings joy in a place where there's so much sorrow and, in some places, not a lot of hope. And yeah. so people mm-hmm. are able to kind of have that. She She's able to heal my patients in a way that I can't. Yeah. And so I feel like that, and then she she can heal the staff and and it's fun. I get to bring my dog to work and see right. how she brings joy to other people. And even if it's something goofy, like she goes in to the coffee shop and sits for a pup cup Yeah. and everyone's at the coffee shop, you know, everyone smiles in terms of like, Someone might be taking a break from sitting at the bedside of their very ill family yeah. member, and they get to see this like puppy slurping up whipped cream, yeah. right? So anyway, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a fun. I'm very thankful that the clinic allows me to do it, and um, um, it's so easy because like one of my big things in one of the chapters in my book is every day is a chance to impact a life, you know. Yeah. And uh, how easy with that golden retriever is it to impact somebody's life, you know? Right? Just, this is the most simplest ways of just oh, that, that ripple life. effect, yeah, too. Yeah. And that's that's something. I mean, again, speaking volumes uh, to you as a as a clinician, as a person, as a person of faith, as a community member too, to to actually identify that and to have a passion and a desire to do that on your own. Because there's nothing you know that forces you to do that in your career, uh, but to see the impact. Uh, and the effect that it has on people's mood and well-being and then continue to pursue it. And he just got a second dog, too. I did. Right? Yeah. So she, was, she ain't ready to be a therapy uh, dog. Yeah, yeah, no, no. She's, she's, she's jumping and she, she, little she work didn't work yet. Little, yeah. work, yet. Yeah. Yeah. little work yet. That's uh, that's great. Uh, all right. So before we let go, I got to ask you a couple uh, standard questions we yeah. like to ask all, um, all of our guests. So uh, if you could, what would you go back and tell your younger self? Not to worry. It's all going to be fine. You'll figure it out. I feel like I worried too much when I played sports about not performing mm. in terms of not scoring enough goals, not getting enough assists, not not getting interceptions, not making the defensive play, not being a starter. I wish I would have enjoyed it more. If you didn't have that motor, would you have gotten to where you are, though? That's a good point. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing, it's but that point. is that is a good uh, – I, 
Yeah, we, we've, we've been down there. I'm saying, I think you either have the drive or you don't have the drive, right. you know? I mean, yeah. and if you want it bad enough. Yeah. So, um, would you, would you, uh, would you do it again? Yes. I'm glad I don't have to. Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, this kind of goes to your what would you tell your younger self? But it, uh, from the whole side of things, what would you would? Is there anything you do differently other than the not worry? I don't think so. Oh, cool. I mean, again, I I'm just so thankful that there's such purpose to whenever I get up and go to work. Like I, I know I'm going to have an impact. Yeah. You know, I know I'm going to be able to it's do be something. Most likely, you know, yeah. I I just um I don't even like to think about it as. I used to not like to call it like going to work, you know, mm-hmm. I, it's like I'm going to the hospital. Like yeah. that makes more sense to me rather than, you know, I'm going to work, you yeah. know, because um, that's work is a grind. Yeah. yeah you works, know, and works which, a grind. works well, a job, works a paycheck. <laughs> well, and I, you know, there is a grind, right? Yeah. You know, because it's not all, you know, roses and making a difference and doing the fun stuff in terms of operating and make people, you know, people wake up, Oh, my legs better. I want to hug you. You know, like that's, or, you know, Oh, you saved my life, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, there's all the paperwork and stuff Mm. like that, but you know, it's, it's what did, uh, there was a sermon a couple of weeks ago at church that was, you take the weeds with the wheat. Right. And I feel like in every aspect of my life, you know, you know, marriage too, like, marriage is hard right especially when you have kids oh mine's and then, perfect <laughs> <laughs> well and then doing what i do megan doesn't listen yeah. to this he's married to a megan too yeah. i'll oh, tell you that really? so we got three yeah. megans uh, oh yeah. god they must be great she must be great <laughs> yeah m-e-g-a-n i'm a, i'm an h oh see she'd say yeah. you do yeah well that's why you're an overachiever our, I got our wives aren't doctors <laughs> i got an extra letter <laughs> it's because of that h <laughs> that's it yeah sorry honey <laughs> Oh, I don't man. know how my marriage is. You'd have to ask my wife. <laughs> She'll tell you. No, you're right, though. That's a, that's a very, very, uh, very valid point. So um, a lot of times we I, I like to ask people this question, but I don't even know if we want to know. Uh, if not a neurosurgeon, what else would you have liked to have been in life? Outside of medicine? Whatever. I mean, I, obviously it seems like, you know, but if, yeah, if you weren't going to go medicine, what would it have been? Probably a teacher. Outstanding. I my, think you'd be a good teacher. My mom was a teacher. And um, she was a great teacher, taught special ed for years. And, you know, you're going to make a huge impact on kids that way, too. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if I'd have the patience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I understand. Yeah. Think of all the patience you have now. But I'm pumped. That was and, solid, Jake. And with that, Megan Murphy, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks and, for coming. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. Remember, uh, you can always hear this wherever you get any of your podcasts. Uh, so continue to uh, stay tuned for the radio episodes every Saturday morning on KTOE. And then again, the podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And thank you for listening to another episode of Strength from Service. This is the Strength from Service podcast.